we've heard over this last day and a half. I um, appreciate those brothers, and that was wonderful putting that together to hear the perspectives of those men who are serving Christ and gospel ministry. And I'm privileged to come now to this final session in Steadfast Conference 2021. Uh, the language was used that I'm um, hitting cleanup, I think. I'm not much of a baseball guy, but I do know essentially what it means. Um, and Nate said to me that bases were loaded, but the implication of that is that you, it, they really can't be loaded because both of you hit home runs. So actually, there's no one on base. It's not as if you hit a single and a double. That really didn't happen, so you hit a home run, so it's truly not cleanup. I just see if I can do the same. That's really what's happening here. So I do know that much about baseball. Um, you know, football guy, that's how these things are. Um, but I am privileged to come here in this final session to now ask the question, present to you, to challenge, to admonish, to exhort that we would live for Christ in the church and um, pray with me. Father, thank you for what we have heard already. I ask for your help in these moments ahead. Give me grace that the people of God will learn and that I will learn as well how we can live for you in the church. In Christ's name, amen. So indeed, you know, we've heard that we need to look to Christ, um, verses one to four, and then the idea that we need to be a witness for Christ, so important. And then the idea of looking at the church of Smyrna and how we can be ready when pressure comes. And I'm going to take on a number of verses here to finish off our time. And two parts, live for Christ by killing the sin of the past. We'll notice that in verses 5 through 11 and then live for Christ by putting on the virtues of faith. So we need to kill and we need to put on. We need to put something to death, but we need to stimulate life in other parts of us. And if we can do that, we will live for Christ. The whole point of verses 1 to 4 is that the the church at Colossae was astray, false teachers in their midst saying that you should focus on ceremony and knowledge and self-abasement and these false visions of angels and, and even Sabbaths and holidays and not look to Christ. Then when we think about living with courage, how do we have a courageous faith? That means that we need to show that faith in the marketplace of life. And when you think about being prepared to live, even to live in the footsteps, if you will, of a polycarp, and ultimately a polycarp only lived in the footsteps of Peter, which says of Jesus Christ, everything goes back to Christ, doesn't it? It really does. But we need to live for him in the church. There has to be this marriage always between what we believe and how we live. There has to always be a marriage between our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy, what we believe and we hold to courageously and then how we live and we should live courageously as well. And maybe the better word even as we heard earlier 
it's not even so much courageously. It's not saying that it isn't, but what we first must focus on is that we should live obediently. And this is what we see in this passage. Now, there's an important context that we need to think about, and that is the importance of chapter 3, 1 through 17, to the instructions that you will see in chapter 3, 18 to 4, 6. And why do I say that? Because uh, this chapter um, 1 to 17 is now in one sense almost like a, a, a pre-counseling, uh, a preparation for now the expectations that you will see in chapter 3, 18 all the way through 4, 6. It's preparation for family life. It's preparation for how you live at work. It's preparation for how you behave in the world. And my college football days, uh, preparation was incredibly important. And I remember many practices and the coach and his whistle and blowing. and, And at times, if we didn't get it right, we went over the play again and again and again. And then came game time, which there is a lot of kids right now that are playing on a Saturday, even now playing, but they just don't show up on a Saturday and say, I'd like to play in the game today. No, you have to go through the practice that takes place. And sometimes even if we had a night game on a Saturday, we would get up early in the morning and go over things even on a Saturday. I remember at times we'd been in a, a large hotel and we would go to one of the big ballrooms and we'd actually practice in the ballroom, getting ready for the game. And what is Paul getting them ready for the church at Colossae? Well, in verse 18, he's saying, if you pay attention and look to Christ, and if you think about living for Christ, then you'll be prepared. Wise will be prepared for submission. In verse 18, Husbands will then properly be motivated to love, verse 19. And in verse 20, children will be motivated properly to obey fathers. In verse 21, they won't exasperate their children. And then in verses 22 to 25, then employees and um, employers will have a proper working relationship and they will have the proper ethics and how they should work unto the Lord. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, then um, the employers, they will live out um, a, a right sort of attitude towards those that are working for them. They're slaves. There will be fair practice because they realize that they have a master in heaven. And interesting, we're back to that language again about looking above. Look above and realize you have a master who is looking over you. Live accordingly. And then in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, they will be prepared for evangelism. Because notice what it says in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to respond to each person. But how can I have my speech seasoned? How will I conduct myself with myself with wisdom if I don't pay attention to looking to Christ? And then everything that we're going to notice in verses 5 to 17, that's your practice. That's your preparation. And the order is intentional, obviously. Look to Christ. Now 
put to death these things, put on the virtues of faith, and then you can live properly in the home. And once you're living properly in the home, you will be a proper witness in the world. Because it could have easily, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, could have been somewhere else. It's obvious. But this is often Pauline thought, isn't it? Even in chapter Ephesians, we see a clear division between now, here is theology and practice. We see it in Romans. Here's theology and here's practice. And we're seeing this even in Colossians. Here's theology and now here's practice. Because if we don't practice our theology, it's questionable whether or not we have learned the theology. Do we agree with that? Absolutely. So I want us to just look at these um, two major headings, and, and there are a number of sub-points underneath that I hopefully you can track with me as we go through it so that we can practice our faith. And when we leave here, uh, we go into the world, and we're supposed to be, as we heard even this morning, salt and light. And if the salt has lost its tastiness, its purpose, then it's no good. You just need to trample it under feet by men. Don't use it as a preservative anymore. And there's some indication that even the salt would have just been put on the top of a roof as a way to kind of help it for absorbing moisture. It's no good anymore. It's no longer used for that preservative purposes, but use it in this way. And then when you go to your roof, you're sort of trampling on the salt. But we don't want to be that way. I know you don't want to be that way. That's why you spent um, uh, most of you perhaps last night and even a good part of this day coming to hear the word of God. Uh, you want to be salt and light, do you not? I mean, we all want to be salt and light. Now, here's the reality is that sometimes our light is flickering. Yeah, it's flickering. It's not what it used to be, and it's not what it should be. And that's why we need to keep reminding ourselves to look to Christ and hear everything that we've heard today and that we'll ever hear from God's Word and seek to practice it. So this, this first major heading, let's consider it, live for Christ by killing the sin of the past. By killing the sin of the past. That's verses 5 through 11. And first, we need to understand this command to kill sin. But before we do that, notice, if you will, in verse 2, chapter 3, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. But then notice verse 5, therefore consider the members of your earthly body. Notice he says, don't look to the things that are on earth. And what you need to do is address sin in your earthly body. Uh, when we think in the sense of worldliness, Paul is saying you, you need to be oriented towards heaven, not towards your past, not towards the flesh. That's obvious. And when we look at this passage in a moment, every vice that you see that it's mentioned can do harm if not destroy not only our relationships in the body, but they will also destroy or harm our testimony in the workplace. The language in verse 5 is very strong. Actually, it's, it's more than just considering your members as dead. I have the, the, the NASB says, Con, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. Um, preferable is actually the ESV, and it says put to death the members of your earthly body. And I remember when I first looked at that, I thought that's curious. Why did the NASB not bring out this strong language? And I believe the language is clear 
Paul says, now that you've looked to Christ, this should properly motivate you, and now you should be motivated to put sin to death. The things that linger from your past. And what are some of these things that would damage our relationships in the body and that would hinder our witness in the world? Well, he says it's immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed. And all of these things do what? They undermine the fidelity of our relationships. And also they undermine the integrity of our witness in the workplace. We go out and we want to be an example of Jesus Christ, but yet if these things are still lingering and people see them and not the light of Christ and not the saltiness, if you will, of our Christian testimony, if in fact they still see immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed, then our testimony is muted. Our voices don't have the significance that they should. And when you think about a leader, when a leader fails morally, uh, you don't listen to them anymore, do you? There's just something that happens to that person's voice. And even there are some people that um, I have at one point in time enjoyed hearing their singing and hearing them lead worship. And then when I found out about the person's life, I just couldn't listen to them anymore because every time I would listen, it was going through this grid of, the life that they were living while they were touring in their Christian concerts. And with us, we have a voice that should be heard in the world. We are proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we want our voices to continue to be strong, we have to put to death sin, the past. Said differently, the vices of the past will will lead us to make sinful choices. And those choices will do what? They will destroy trust. They'll lead to compromise. They'll reflect the heart of selfishness instead of thinking of others first. And all of these things are unlike Christ. Unlike Christ. Understand the relationship to our spiritual death. Understand the relationship to your spiritual death. I mentioned this last night. Therefore... Therefore, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He said, therefore, your life, which is Christ, when it's revealed, it will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, in light of that truth, live accordingly. Remember, as I said even um, last night, you've died with Christ. Colossians 2, 12, 13, and 20. You've died to the world. Colossians 2, 20. You have died to the law. We see that in Romans 7, Galatians 2.19. You have died to sin. This is Romans chapter 6. So understand, now I must put sin to death because I have died to it. Now what I must do, have the mindset, the attitude that is looking above, and I must wage war on that which still lingers in my life, in the flesh. And all of us in this room are dealing with some element of the flesh, are we not? And some and other areas and others, it's another room, if you will. But all of us are in the midst of a battle. So we need to understand our relationship to our spiritual death. We have died. And our life now, this new life, is hidden with Christ. And our new life is now in him. But we also need to understand this. I go back to something I already said. Understand the intensity of the command. Put to death. 
incredibly important. There's certain things that you just cannot play with, and one is sin. Uh, we have to have an attitude. It's hacking Agag to pieces. And you remember, as the man of God would do just that, when there was disobedience to address this person that in one sense represented an enemy of God, and what happened, there was a decision to hack it to pieces. It is Jesus Christ, and he said, when it comes to the issues of the heart and and of the flesh, uh, you have to be radical at times. And sometimes it means, what must we do to our eye? He says, pluck it out. And what much we do to our hand, we have to chop it off. And what was he communicating? Be radical about addressing the issues that linger in the heart. Because if not, they will begin to take a corner in your life that you never planned. We need to understand this as well. Understand the character of sin. Understand the character of sin. And what do I mean by that? Notice what he says, verse 5, put to death the members of your earthly body, um, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. But notice what he says, which amounts to idolatry. And this is what I mean by understanding the character of sin. Now, we could spend some time looking at each of those words, but for this message, it's unnecessary. And it's, some of them are really quite obvious. Immorality, any expression of, of sexual deviation. Impurity, it may be expressed sexually, but it could be otherwise. Passions that are not God-given passions, but in a sense, it's a lust, evil desire, and that's obvious. Now, one could have a desire, but those desires must be what? They must be formed. They must be set by biblical principles and not here, evil desires and greed. And it all amounts, Paul says, it all amounts to idolatry. He's saying, take them all together and you have created your God. And we see this in society, do we not? Society says, I want, I have greed. That's their idol. Society says, I have a passion for this aspect of life. I want these things in life. And they convince themselves that they'll be satisfying, and they aren't. That's idolatry. And we think about even man and his sexual deviations and the sexual revolution which we've gone through in this homosexual homosexual revolution that it seems like we're in the midst of. There's this sense of a lust, and it is idolatrous. It is an idol. Men, for the most part, are not addressing actually idols that sit in their home, but they are addressing the idols of the flesh. And that's why Calvin said that, in fact, the heart is, in in the end, an idol factory. We're producing them all the time. We produce these idols in the flesh. And Paul says, if you're going to live for Christ, you must put them to death. It's interesting if one in my If you're going through the Old Testament, you'll often see in these moments in the life of Israel when there is a period of reform, what would happen in the period of reform when there were idols amongst the land of Israel? What would happen? The king would say what? Go about the land and do it. Smash them into pieces. Burn them. And at times even grinding them into dust. How many times was the Asherah torn down? How many times were the high places torn down? Again and again, the idols were created. Here is a revival, idolatry. A revival, idolatry. 
And what we have to do is to break that cycle when it comes to the idols of our own life and say, let me finally put them to death. But what can happen sometimes, we put one to death and another one seems to have life. And sometimes if we are not, it really isn't sometimes, it's all the time. If we're not diligent and if we take our eyes off of Christ, the former idols seem to resurrect themselves, do they not? And why does it happen? Because we're not properly motivated to continue to kill sin. So let's understand that. Understand the motivation to kill sin. What is the motivation to kill sin? I've already said, well, of course it is what? It is looking to Christ. And if we look to Christ and we're motivated to say, why would I want the things that murdered Christ to linger in my heart? And that's what we all have to address in our personal relationship with the living God. Why would I want to continue to live in the things that caused his pain? Notice what it says in verse 6. He says, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. So we say, well, what is my motivation to kill sin? I would say that part of your motivation is think about sin in relation to the wrath of God. Sin brings about wrath. I no longer want to identify with anything that reflects the wrath of God. I have escaped the wrath of God, amen? And because you've escaped the wrath of God, why would I want to live any portion of my life in any way that's associated with the wrath that I have escaped? So he says, these things... It's a reason the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I'm no longer a son of disobedience. I'm no longer a daughter of disobedience. So let me behave properly. It's also in relation to the grace of God. We say, what do you see the grace of God? Notice verse 7. He says, will come upon the sons of disobedience. Wrath is coming. And then it says, and in them also you once walked when you were living in them. This is how you once walked. See, that's a statement of the grace of God. And all of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ should be able to say, praise God for his grace, amen? Because without the grace of God, you would still be walking in them. But what did the Lord do in his infinite grace and in his infinite wisdom and in his kindness and his eternal mind? What did he do? He set his affections upon us even before time, and then some point in time, he called us to himself, and he pulled us away from that. And now we walk differently. This is why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4 that we should walk worthy, which is consistent with the manner of our calling. No longer in wrath, but now as children of grace. But the thing about it is sin can be attractive. Sin can be attractive. How do I know that? Well, look at this image and the words attractive and fragrance and robust and deadly. It's as beautiful, isn't it? It's, it's actually a weed. It's a form of what's called a wisteria. There was a Chinese and a Japanese wisteria. And I, I came across this some years ago. I was actually traveling uh, in the Maryland area. And as we're going through the roads there, it's unlike traveling here in Southern California. You sort of travel through desert. 
Uh, I love traveling in parts of the East Coast, but it's like because the freeways are just cut through forest. It's beautiful. And in this time of year, it's beautiful. But I was going, I thought, what are these things? Uh, they're so beautiful. But then in the next moment, I would see something very different. They have a wonderful fragrance to it. it they're very attractive, but they're incredibly deadly. Notice that. You may not be able to see it, but you see how it's, you can look to the left and to the right and you see those trees that are there. And once it starts to spread, it chokes out the life on the tree. And there are portions where I was driving along to dense forest areas and you would see these large patches where the trees has essentially been strangled by what was it. Initially, you think that's very beautiful, but it's not. Do you get my point? Can sin be that way? It can be attractive. And this is why even the writer of Hebrews says, you remember Moses? Moses, it says that he chose to endure ill treatment with his brothers rather than, it says this, notice it, rather than the passing pleasures of sin. The passing pleasures of sin. So the scripture does not try to paint sin in a way that says there is no pleasure that comes with it. Yes, there is physical, perhaps even mental pleasure, but it's passing. And then, but the consequences of it. What will happen though? Your flesh never warns you. Your flesh never says to you, Uh, It will give you temporary pleasure. However, the consequences will be this. Even as we heard mentioned earlier, this sense in which when you you, you hear about a leader that has fallen, when they fall, and I think it was Nate that said it, they're they're not just at this mountaintop and they just catapult down. Something happened beforehand. They were smelling the aroma of what is really a weed that will kill them. And they were thinking that's attractive instead of putting it to death. So how do you kill sin? Well, you increase your vision of Christ. You continue to look above. That's how you kill sin. You avoid the fragrance of sin. Here's some other practical ways in which you can kill sin. Don't push your spiritual limits. Sometimes what people do is they play with fire. That's why in the Proverbs it tells us, it says, can a man take fire in his bosom and not be burned? Can you walk on hot coals and not be scorched? And this is what happens when people don't kill sin. They don't, you cannot nourish the past. You need to create as much distance as you can from the past. I would say this, don't fight alone. Have someone else with you to help you in this fight. And that's why even the conversation we had about church life and being together is so important. You need someone that can fight with you, that can be right there with you. Do consider the consequences. What will this cost me? Do strive for virtue, which is what we'll see even more so in a moment. Do be extreme when needed. And when I say be extreme, the sense in which we need to take radical actions because sin is surely coming against us radically at times. Do monitor your time. How do I spend my time? Where do I place my efforts? I would say this, do fast and pray. God, help me in this area. Do memorize and meditate. Memorize God's word. Meditate on God's word. That's one reason that I, I tend to take in large portions of the Bible 
And some would say, oh, wow, you read through the Bible that often? That's really wonderful. You're so spiritual. Friends, I'm reading that much of the Bible because I'm sinful. Because I need to have thoughts of God. And those thoughts of God uh, can arrest the issues of my own flesh. So we must kill sin. Do you agree with that? We need to live with integrity. We need to be a people who live, live with integrity. Notice verses 9 through 11. Uh, Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And he says, and put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Be people of integrity. We see here there's simply a command to be a people of integrity. Do not lie to one another. If we're to be a people that can have these relationships that will be robust and helping each other to mature in the faith so that we can go into the world and be a witness, be that salt and light, we have to be honest with one another. It's very straightforward. And he says here, there's also a rationale for you to be people of integrity. Why should you be a people of integrity? Since you have laid it aside. This is a part of your past. Don't pick up the past again. Now, God is a God of integrity. Strive for integrity in your life. Here's a second major heading that I want us to consider to spend the rest of our time. Live for Christ by putting on the virtues of faith. Live for Christ by putting on the virtues of faith. And verses 12 to 17, first we we stop for a moment and we see that they're bound even to our justification. There's There's a justification for this command. Notice verse 12, so... Are, are therefore, and what do I mean by that? Notice he says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. And that's the statement. I must live differently because now I am a person who has been called in eternity. I am a chosen of God. I am a holy one. I am beloved by the living God. Now let me live accordingly. Therefore, he says, Because this is true of your life, live accordingly. And then it's also bound to these virtues, the virtues of the command. Notice verses 12 to 14. He says, what? Put on, since you are a child of God, you have been chosen, you are holy and beloved. Live up to those expectations. You are empowered to live up to those expectations. How do I know that? Well, it's what he said before. I've been raised with Christ. My life is hidden with him. I am in him. Therefore, I do have the power to live accordingly. It's not based on the power that comes from me conjuring up strength by denying my body. It's not a strength that comes from me observing a Sabbath day. It's not from strength that comes from me observing a ceremony. It comes from my relationship with the living God. In these words, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. How they are so needed in the church. It was Thomas Watson who said, meekness is a grace whereby we are enabled by the Spirit of God to moderate our passions, to moderate our passions. 
He's saying, yes, we still have these passions in our lives, but if we're a person of meekness, a person of humility, then we can moderate them properly. Be gentle. What about the role of gentleness? Let's talk about gentleness in the life of the church. If we're going to live for Christ, gentleness is absolutely necessary. Why is it necessary? Because gentleness is needed for restoration. Galatians 6.1, it says those who are um, spiritual, those who are spiritual, what do we do? We restore such a one, but with a spirit of a way of gentleness. Don't handle them harshly. It's needed for confrontation as well. 2 Timothy 2 and 25, there are, there are moments when we must confront others, but we must do it with a spirit of gentleness. Of Jesus Christ, Matthew eleven twenty nine. it is our calling as imitators of God. Jesus Christ says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Gentleness needed in the body of Christ. How do we live with patience, though? How do we live with patience? Patience in the church. Interesting word, the word macrothumia. And, and it means to be macro to long, if you will, as opposed to micro. Uh, thumia, thumas, this idea of suffering, or we might even say at times passion. So you have to be long of suffering. That means that you cannot be a person with a short fuse, have a long fuse. There is no such thing as people in the church saying, you're getting on my last, say it. Ah, that should be foreign to us. You're getting on my last nerve. Well, get another nerve because that's what the Bible says, right? Macrothumia. We'll make up a word right now. Macronervia. Okay, there it is. It's so needed to be patient. Aren't you glad? I ask you a question, friends. Are you not glad that God was patient with you? Where would you be without the patience of God? And this is what the scripture tells us, and the patience of God waiting for us to come to repentance. And then we don't show patience in the church. We say, if they do that again, I'm so tired of. Oh, if we applied that to our own lives, where would we be? God would have thrown us aside many, many times. And there's wisdom for being patient in the church as well that we can grab from the, um, the Proverbs. When we're patient, according to Proverbs 14, 29, it helps us avoid strife. We can, it helps us in resolutions, um, Proverbs 15 and 18. It helps with our reputation when we're a patient person. It's a sign of wisdom when we show patience with others. But also this, notice if you will, we go back to um, Colossians 3, notice verse 13 and 14. So we put on this heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Compassion means we have a heart for others. Kindness, we show practical ways in which we can help them. Humility, obviously, a right perspective of ourselves. And then he says in verse 13 and 14, Live with forgiveness and love in the church, 13 and 14. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. 
whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So we stop here for a moment, and how do we understand this? How do we live this way? So first, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. But notice the language, whoever has a complaint against anyone. So Paul recognizes at some point in time, you will have a complaint against another, and someone will have a complaint with you. But as the body of Christ, we must work it out. If not, what happens? I ask you a question. Uh, what is one thing um, that can be a genuine stumbling block to unbelievers when they look to the church? I think in a Q&A, I don't forget who it was, it mentioned that sometimes people will say, well, I would come to church, but there's so many hypocrites there. But there are churches where they have been, they have splintered, there have been arguments, there have been fights. And then people from the outside look at us and say, and this is the body of Christ? These are the people that are chosen and holy and beloved? These are the people that are supposed to be looking to Christ who is coming for them again? Is this Christianity? We have a responsibility. That is not light. That is not salt. Whoever has a complaint. But notice the motivation. The supreme motivation is right there in verse 13. Just as the Lord forgave you. Let that sink in for a moment. It may be a verse you've memorized. It may be a verse you've heard a hundred times. Then hear it a hundred more and hear it a hundred more and hear it a hundred more. Just as the Lord forgave you. Then the question comes up, who are we? to not forgive. Let's move on. Live with peace, preaching and songs in the church. We're going to finish our time here. And I, and I want you to see sort of how the language unfolds in, in these words that flow through the passage itself. Where we see things that are in common here. Let the peace of Christ, let the word of Christ, whatever you do. And then we see this idea of rule and richly dwell and do all. Then we see that it's in your heart, that it is within you, that it is what? Again, in your heart. And then notice it says it is to God and it's to God the Father. And if you see the full thought, he wants us to make sure that we have this peace and the word and that we have a, a, a mindset that says any action whatsoever we do, make sure we do it to the honor of Christ, and we do it with a certain attitude. And what is it? Notice verse 15, and be thankful. Verse 16, it says, with thanksgiving. Verse 17, giving thanks in all that we do in life. And all of us here have some reason, surely, if we know the Lord, to give thanks, do we not? We have reason to give thanks because we have escaped the eternal punishment of hell. If there's not another thing to be mentioned in the Bible except for that, we should spend the rest of our lives being thankful, shouldn't we? God, I have escaped the wrath of God that is meant for the sons of disobedience. And not only have I escaped it, but now you give me joy and peace and contentment. Not only have I escaped it, but now you make me a child of God. Not only have I escaped your wrath, but now I'm a joint heir with Christ. Not only have I escaped it, but now one day this 
this glorious salvation that I have will be revealed with him in glory. I you know, mentioned me playing college football, and um, I really don't get a chance to watch it much. Um, I know my, where I played, my team is doing well. They're like ranked number five in the country now. And, and um, I, I watched the highlights about a couple of days ago in the big game. They went up to Notre Dame and won at Notre Dame, and they moved up the ladder to number five. And people tend to, they will ask me, well, hey, how much did you watch the game? Did you see that game? I really didn't. I just, I don't have time for it. My habit is to, uh, maybe on a Monday I'll go and, Five-minute highlights, five-minute highlights, and I'm pretty satisfied. Um, it was fun when I played. Um, but it was fun when you actually got on the field. We had probably 100 people on the team, but not everyone played. Not everyone got on the field. Um, and some guys, we call them a walk-on. They didn't go to scholarship, but they thought, I want to try out. And they would just walk on and and some guys made it, and some guys didn't. And you can walk on, and maybe you don't get a scholarship the first term, but if you do well, the coach may give you a full ride. I was fortunate, never paid a penny for my education. I think about this by way of this sort of sports analogy, if you will. But some of those guys, when they walked on, it was like, I made the team. They didn't have to play a down for four or five years. But the fact that they made the team, they were on the team, was such a joy to them. God has called us into himself. We're in the family of God. You're in the family of God, but not just in the family of God. You have a strategic role in the family of God. Amen? You're not just sitting on the bench. And some of those guys, they could sit on the bench for four years and they'd be totally satisfied. And I suppose there's some satisfaction with that. God has called you from darkness into light. And he says, now I need you. I've chosen you to go into the world to be light and to be salt. I mean, think about that for a moment. To be commissioned by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What an honor. And not only I have chosen you, I went looking for you. I pulled you out of darkness into light. You were running away from me, and I placed you into the family of God. Now you have a work to do. And this is the thought of Ephesians. Um, Each one of us has a work that we must complete, right? Beforehand, these works have been set apart for us, and we must do them to the honor of God. Each one of you, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, there is some contribution that he wants you to make. Do you not agree with that? Because this is clearly the thought that, t- that we have even from Colossians, uh, not Colossians, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Each of us, there's a role for us to play in the body of Christ, and we must play that. But how do we do it? Well, here's some ways in which we can continue to live for Christ and have a healthy body. So yes, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and whatever we do first, live in the sovereign peace of Christ. That's verse 15. Notice what it says in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let it rule in your hearts. What does this mean to rule in your hearts? 
how do we understand to rule in your hearts? A very interesting word. And the word means to, it can be translated to control or to rule or to arbitrate. The word can actually mean even to umpire. In Greek literature, the, the word was often used in athletic contests because someone had to make a decision in the athletic contest. Who was the victor? We see a, a, a compound of it. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, there notice what it says. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels taking his stand on visions. Here, defrauding you is how it's translated here. They are taking away something that is yours. The King James actually says, let no one beguile you of your, of your prize. So we think about ruling, controlling, arbitrating. Don't let anyone arbitrate and make a decision against you by saying you should follow these ceremonies. No, look only to Christ. One scholar said this. um, He says, and this is how he translated, let the peace of Christ decide as umpire in your hearts. Think about that. What does an umpire do? Uh, he makes a decision, and people can disagree with that decision, but the umpire is saying, he's saying foul, or he's saying strike, or he's saying it's a ball. And I like that wording, to rule, to arbitrate. And, and what does it mean, then, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart? Because one may think, well, you're talking about just the peace that I have, and I, and I feel tranquil, and I feel at ease. No, he's talking about more than that. You cannot derive peace from following what these false teachers think, the peace must come from Christ. And also he's saying, in the midst of the the body of Christ, there will be times when there will be differences, will there not? Now, what is going to be that deciding factor? Well, it has to be the sovereign peace of Christ that will be the deciding ruler, if you will. And it will keep the body together. It will keep us joined to one another this lordship of Jesus Christ. Christ's lordship also does this. It's brought about unity. Notice, if you will, go back to chapter 3. It's brought about unity. What does it say there in the text? It tells us, into which indeed you were called into one body, be thankful. So now that we're unified, let us not splinter what God has brought together. And then Christ's lordship does what? It should stimulate gratitude. It should stimulate gratitude. Notice verse 16. He says, what is this gratitude? Well, verse 15, be thankful. And then also in verse 16, be with thankfulness in your hearts. And in verse 17, giving thanks. We should have gratitude in every area of life. But what does it mean? Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Live with the indwelling word of Christ. Now, some would say, well, the word of Christ, he's talking individually. We should memorize scripture and meditate on scripture. Let that dwell in your heart. Now, that is true, but he is talking about the body. So this is what I think Paul is communicating here. In a church, what should happen? The word of Christ has to permeate every area of the church. The preaching of Christ. So when Christ's word 
is preached, uh, uh, when it is, when we read the word of God, when we recite the word of God, it has to permeate every fabric of the church. Now, there are churches that do have Bibles, and there are churches that would say it's even a Bible church, and there are churches, if you look at their doctrinal statement, it would say the same thing as another church, but it doesn't permeate every fabric of the church. It's very different. Some of you may have grown up having a family Bible in your home, but it really didn't permeate the life of your family. Some of you grew up memorizing Scripture, but it had not really permeated your life. And there are churches that would say, yes, we believe in biblical doctrine, but yet it doesn't permeate every aspect of life. Let me help you by giving you an image. And the image is really built into the word when it says dwell, because it's derived from a word oikos, and the, and the word is for house. And, and when it talks about dwelling, it's this idea that it must permeate, it should take deep root in, it should affect every part of us. Um, a young couple, they get married, and they buy their first home, perhaps, or even it's just their apartment. At least for us, um, we didn't have furniture for every room in the house. And some of you, that may have been your journey as well. But with time, you furnish this room, and you furnish that room, and you furnish the next room. Then at some point in time, you have too much stuff, right? And then you have to get rid of things. That happens to us as well. And when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you, in your midst, in the midst of the church, in your hearts, does it affect youth ministry? Does it affect biblical counseling? Does it affect your worship? Does it affect your outreach? That's what is being communicated here. Let it take root in every area of your house. And so when a church says, well, here are our ministries in our church, you go to their website and you hit a pull down menu and it says, here's women's ministry and men's ministry and youth ministry and whatever else. We have jail ministry, you know, a whole list of things. Paul is saying, does the word of God permeate every aspect of that house. Then we can also ask that on an individual level. Are you keeping a room to yourself? You have a private room. It's just your space. No, there's no such thing in the Christian life. Do you agree with that? You no longer have any space Why do you no longer have any space? Because the scripture tells us plainly, you have been bought with a what? Price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We have to give him our all. But wouldn't it be wonderful? And we we don't always give him our all, do we? But we continue to strive so that every room of the house can be affected by the word of God. And notice, he even builds on the thought. Notice, if you will, verse 16. Let the word of Christ, yes, dwell among you, but he says richly. So he adds to it. He even emphasizes it. This is the question for every church and for even for every believer. Then let's finish verse 17. Well, verse 16. Then what should we do? Let it dwell within you with wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, which is a, a thought that is similar to 128 in Colossians. And you do this also with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart. 
So there has to be this sense in which in the, a church, we edify one another. And how do we edify one another? Through these psalms and hymns and spiritual psalm, songs, psalms, uh, those things that are scriptural, particularly we see it in the Old Testament, hymns, uh, and most likely to use what Christocentric, an example of it might be a Philippians tap, chapter 2, something that was exalting Christ, a hymn that would glorify him, spiritual songs. Most likely it's a song that was spontaneous praise to the Lord that would elevate him. And the church should be full of people that are singing these songs. There's power when we can sing songs that are permeated by the word of God because they have lyrics that remind us of biblical truth. That's why it's important that our worship in song has a proper philosophy. And what do I mean by that? There are places where they sing and they sing and they sing and they sing, but my mind is not stimulated because it's not grounded properly. We have to sing things that are grounded properly so our hearts will be stimulated unto the Lord. Do you agree with that? We've sung some wonderful songs over these last day and a half, haven't we? And it reflected, the effort was reflected in organizing them and choosing them. Great themes, great lyrics. And when we sing these songs, they should remind us of our faith. And then verse 17, as we close. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So we live for the privilege of service to Christ. What's the scope of this service? Well, whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all. It encompasses every part of our life. Um, You know, my mom, I wish I had known more of her. She died when I was very young, very young. And so what I know of her has come from other people. Um, but her favorite verse, as I understand it, was this sense from, of course, Corinthians that tells us just this thought. And let's just turn there to read it together. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Familiar text, but sometimes just to, to look is helpful. 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 30 says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I slander concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the what? What does he say? Glory of God. This is how we live our lives. That's how she lived her life. And what's interesting is that, you know, my mom died when I was seven and I was raised by my dad after that time, until he went into eternity, um, now, oh my, 30 years ago. It's interesting how a person, when they live for the Lord, can have an impact, even though they had a short span of life. Because my mom died, I think she was only 42, cancer. But when you live for Christ, you can have a great impact, can't you? I was just sharing with some of my students in a class this week, David Brainerd. We were looking at his life. 
29 years of age, tuberculosis. But he, and I was asking my students, how is it that we're talking about this man right now? He only had 29 years of life. Here's Polycarp, 86. And he says of Brainerd, you only have 29. Use them wisely. And he did. He lived with all of his might. And so did Polycarp, all of his might, when he had the Lord. How many years do you have? No one knows. A good friend of mine, and we were talking about COVID, and obviously the statistics for survival are absolutely stacked in our favor, but nonetheless, that percentage does exist. My childhood friend, um, he came, he, same age, we grew up together. And I get a call from his mom, and she says, Carl, pray for Troy, and I can tell you now because he is on the other, he is, he survived and everything is fine. I told him that I might share from time to time his story. He was on a ventilator. And he told me later on, he says, the doctors came to his wife three times and he says, there's nothing we can do. And at one point in time, they gathered the family. He's my same age. They gathered the family together and say, say your final words to your husband, to your dad, to your son. And the Lord pulled him through. I prayed for him. I had my students pray for him. I had, I would put it out, pray for my friend Troy. At times I'd be on my, one of my walks and I'd say, my friend Troy is battling this thing. Will you pray for him? Now he's on the other side. He, and we've talked since then a, a several times and he lost so much weight. He, and I saw him when he was first coming out of the hospital and he was so weak. And I'm thinking, this is not the same guy that I knew that we played golf together and we We'd be making fun of one another in the course together. What happened to him? He came close to death. And one thing that he said to me, he says, now, I said, wow. And his mom said this to me. He takes God so seriously now. And I asked him, what has God taught you? How will you live the rest of your life? God is giving you another chance. What will you do with that chance? Will you live for Christ? We don't know when our day is coming, right? We don't. Will you live for Christ? You don't have to be a polycock. You don't have to be a brainer. But we can, in fact, say... That a life lived for Christ is a life that's lived with purposeful obedience. Do we all agree that there is a need in our country, there's a need in our world for people who can be light and salt? Do we all agree that in this time in the church, we need people who can be bold and courageous and obedient for the living God? Will you live for Christ? He lived and died and raised himself from the dead for you. How you live for him. His love is not in question. Our love is. His forgiveness is not in question. Will we live like a people who've been forgiven by the living God?
That's the last thing I can say to you. What more is there to be said, really? This has been an amazing time. Uh, singing these songs to the Lord and, and hearing great preaching and hearing these men pour their hearts out up here. And, and sometimes I just say to myself, starting with myself, you're a fool, Hargrove. I mean, why would you not let it permeate every aspect of your life? And I don't think I have any rooms that I'm keeping away from him. But then what happens is that I discover, there, yes, there is. There's another room I've, I've kept from him. Are you keeping some room from him right now? It's not permeating your life. He's not the sole purpose in your life. He's not the satisfaction in your life. He's not the contentment in your life. How will you live for Christ? Father, we thank you for these words you give us. Show us mercy by helping us to live for Christ. 